I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That's the music of Bauhaus, and my guest today is the drummer of that band, Kevin Haskins. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Bauhaus. They were named after the German art movement of the 20s. Yeah, there were zany times in Germany before it all went, uh, you know, Hitler-y. Uh, the, there was a very big art movement back then, the Bauhaus art movement, and uh, some amazing artists came from that time period. So Bauhaus took their name from that. They were formed in 1978 in Northampton. The band consisted of Peter Murphy, David Jay, his brother Kevin Haskins, and Daniel Ash. They were like a post-punk band, kind of goth rock. Uh, they were inspired by, I don't know, like Bowie, The Cramps, Velvet Underground, probably Roxy Music, and uh, interestingly enough, a little bit of reggae. They were listening to, actually, they were listening to a lot of reggae at the time of their uh, of their formation. So, there are some strange rhythms in there that are, that are pulled from classic reggae. That's not something that you might have uh, realized when you listen to uh, their albums, but there is a uh, heavy Jamaican influence. And if you listen closely, you can hear it. It's tucked in between all that dark, beautiful murk, but the rhythms of reggae are definitely there. Now, Bauhaus was only together for about five years. They formed in 78, broke up in 83. They put out five albums, In the Flat Field, Mask, the Sky Has Gone Out, which is my personal favorite, uh, Burning From the Inside, and Go Away White. Go Away White is actually a reunion record uh, that they did uh, later on. But when they were together, they put out those four right there. Um, now, when they were done, singer Peter Murphy embarked on a solo career while Daniel Ash and Kevin Haskins formed Tones on Tail. Tones on Tail did their thing for a while. Then they invited David Jay back around, and they became Love and Rockets. Okay, so there you go. There's a little uh, a little primer on Bauhaus. They were a 4AD band. Then they got sent over to Beggar's Banquet because they became too big for 4AD. This band was uh, they were getting up there. Now here's the thing about Bauhaus. They are one of those bands that get name checked by a lot of people that uh, you you know some you'd think and some you wouldn't think. Their influence is deep and wide. Okay, the obvious ones. Skinny Puppy. Well, of course, Skinny Puppy liked Bauhaus. Uh, Glenn Danzig and the Misfits. Sure, that makes sense, right? Uh, Nine Inch Nails. None of this is surprising. Jane's Addiction. Celtic Frost, the metal band. Interesting. Well, how about this? Peter Cetera, the singer of uh, Chicago, in a, uh, in, a, in a video he did in the, in the 80s, I think it was around 84 or so, he's wearing a Bauhaus shirt. Now... Maybe that was just uh, a shirt that belonged to the hot girl he was sleeping with at the time, and she must have been a goth girl, and uh, Peter Cetera landed himself a goth girl, and that was her shirt. That makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me, how did Peter Cetera pick up a goth girl? How did that conversation go? Because if she's like, hi, I'm Jennifer, and he's like, hi, I'm Peter Cetera, singer of Chicago, she would have gone the other way. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the band Chicago was, was the equivalent of, you know, a cross to a vampire 
At least, it, well, it seems like it would be. Maybe I'm wrong because Peter Cetera apparently landed a golf – well, I don't actually know if that's true. Maybe Peter Cetera liked Bauhaus. Let's just go with that because that makes the most sense now, now that I'm, now that I'm working it out with you guys. Okay, so, so Bauhaus has influenced everybody from the Misfits to Jane's Addiction to Peter Cetera. Uh, they are one of those bands. They're iconic. Um, their albums are incredible. They're dark. They're mysterious. They're sexy. They're a great band. And they're one of those bands that it's strange. You go back and you listen to them. They don't sound dated at all. I mean, if you listen to Curiosity Killed the Cat or uh, <laughs> well, I don't know why I'm picking them or Culture Club or Duran Duran, th- there's nothing wrong with those songs. But you can tell when they were recorded. They're sort of uh, soaked in 80s production. Bauhaus are one of those bands that you listen to, and you can't tell when that stuff was recorded. It's timeless. And I think that's why that band has endured as much as they have. Fittingly, the undead iconography and subject matter they sing of uh, actually translates over to them. They will never die. Now, Bauhaus did get back together again back in 1998, then again in 2005, and again in 2008. They played Coachella. They put out the Go Away White record, and uh, as far as reunion albums go, that one's nothing to be ashamed of. It fits beautifully into their discography in a totally seamless way. Okay, So that's the story with Bauhaus. There's a lot more. There's books out there on that band, and uh, there are great compilations if you want to get a little taste of who they are. My, my advice is uh, start with the first album. Get in the flat field. Start there. Work your way all the way to Go Away White. You will not be disappointed, okay? Now, let me tell you about my experience with Bauhaus. By the time I got to them, they'd been broken up for about uh, five or six years. I got to them in 1989, okay? I was aware of them, though, and here's how. So I remember my sophomore year of high school, 1986. I was sitting on a bench, and this guy walked by. He was one of those goth guys, blonde hair, kind of spiked up tall, skinny, and he was wearing a white Bauhaus t-shirt with the sleeves cut off. He also had eyeliner on, and he was wearing big black boots. He was handsome, he was cool, and he was mysterious. And I was like, who's that guy? Then I looked down at the cassette tape that I was um, fixating on. It was Y&T's Mean Streak. Oh, I had a ways to go before I would find Bauhaus. You can see why it took me so long. I was into hard rock. What can I say? Yes, I had a mullet. Yes, it was a bad mullet. You know why it was bad? Because there are no good ones. A few months later, things had magically changed, and I was listening to R.E.M. and Elvis Costello and Love Tractor and the Hoodoo Gurus and the Jazz Butcher Conspiracy and the Smiths. The Smiths at that point were about as goth as I was getting, but I loved them because I felt like an outsider. I felt like a weirdo. I felt like a stranger, not in a strange land, in a normal land. Everything seemed normal, and I felt weird. Uh, I didn't know how to navigate the normal. I was one of those high school students who wasn't interested in how the basketball team was doing, how the, how the football team was doing, when the dance was going to be, when the rally with the cheerleaders was going to happen. I didn't care about any of that stuff. So I worked at the radio station at my high school, and I pretty much hid in there. And I listened to the Smiths, and I listened to Morrissey with his uh, darkness and his humor, the way he'd interweave tragedy and comedy, and I ate that stuff up. But again, 
That was as goth as I was getting. Sure, I liked Susie and the Banshees. I liked The Cure. I was into that stuff. But Bauhaus, they were a mystery to me, and somehow they hadn't been presented to me. No one, uh, no one was coaxing me to listen to them. No one was talking about them. I saw a couple shirts around the high school in addition to uh, that one guy. And, uh, you know, it was sort of like a weird flag that was waving to me from, uh, from a dark beyond. And I just didn't check it out. Didn't get to it till later. Cut two. College. My freshman year. Big surprise. I was running the campus radio station. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't playing baseball for the college. <laughs> that wasn't happening. I was, uh, I was running the show in the radio station. And I was invited to a Violent Femmes exclusive acoustic performance at this weird little French bakery somewhere in San Francisco. And I went there. It was awesome. The Violent Femmes had been kind of out of action for a while. They'd been gone for like three or four years, and they were showing up again uh, with the record three. And they played this bakery. Bob Mould was there, sitting glumly, smoking a cigarette. This tells you how long ago it was. Smoking a cigarette inside a bakery. (laughs) was Bob Mould. Uh, at any rate, I'm sitting at this table, and this guy who worked for some kind of label just handed me a Front 242 CD and a Bauhaus CD. It was Swing the Heartache, which is a uh, compilation of BBC sessions, and it's great, but I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was it was a mysterious cover. It was given to me by a very mysterious guy. He was sort of a, uh, a long-haired Englishman. I have no idea who he was, but he gave it to me. Because sometimes in life, things just have to be given to you. Because I figured I'd always get around to hearing Bauhaus, but I was sure taking my time. And the universe put this guy in front of me, and he gave me the CD, and that was it. Because even though I intended to you know, get around to hearing Bauhaus, I wasn't on a fast track going that direction. I was, uh, I was still mired in uh, a bunch of other stuff, and I wasn't heading towards Bauhaus. So the universe intervened, and, uh, and that's what happened. And I took it home, gave it a listen, and loved it. And that was it. I was hooked. I was into Bauhaus. Sure, it took me a long time to get there, and uh, they'd been broken up for, what, five or six years once I got there. Uh, but look, my, my favorite authors were dead a long time before I got to them. My favorite painters, all dead before I got to them. Uh, some of my favorite bands, broken up or dead many years before I became aware of them. Velvet Underground, Nick Drake, Big Star. You get the idea. The point is we get to stuff when we get to it. Sometimes we find it organically. Other times, a weird English guy with long hair reaches across the table and says, you need this. And I'm glad he did, because I love Bauhaus, and I have him to thank for it. Uh, I had a great chat with Kevin Haskins. Kevin Haskins is the drummer of Bauhaus, or I should say was the drummer. He now is in a band called Poptone with Daniel Ash and Kevin's daughter, So uh, they're out there playing, and they're fantastic. And Kevin is a very sweet guy, and he has a book that he has just put out, and it's called Bauhaus Undead, The Visual History and Legacy of Bauhaus by Mr. Kevin Haskins. It contains handmade flyers by the band, backstage passes, show posters, photos from Kevin's personal collection, band artwork, ticket stubs, fan club material, set lists, contracts. Those are interesting, I bet. 
recording schedule, photos of vintage instruments, tour itineraries, letters, a Bauhaus comic strip, handwritten lyrics, and stories, anecdotes, and memories that Kevin shares. It's a great book. It's a beautiful book. And he's going to talk about how that came to be, how it almost didn't come to be, and how in order for it to come to be, he had to raise it from the dead. It's an interesting story. He's a great guy. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, this is my chat with Kevin Haskins of Bauhaus right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I actually received um, a FedEx uh, the first copy of the press, and I received that a couple of days ago. And uh, it was actually... Um, well, my friend Matt, who works at the publisher Cleopatra, who actually instigated this whole thing um, three years ago, and um, he, you know, he he kind of put in an offer to publish it, but I felt that I wanted to self-publish, and so he, you know, gave me his blessings, and off I went on this crazy journey, uh, like a real roller coaster ride, and. And um, actually ended up back at his apartment two years later with no deal anymore, nothing. And then he offered me a, an attractive deal, which I took. So there's this full circle thing that that happened. And um, he actually handed me over the finished book a couple of days ago, and it was quite emotional. Um because of everything that had gone on, and, and just to actually hold the thing in my hands was an amazing um, feeling. Well, it must have been really great, especially considering that wasn't there a moment where the book almost didn't happen? Yeah, well, I I, um, I met up with this guy, Jeff Anderson, who has produced, produced amazing work. Um, he's done box sets and books for um, Pixies and Beck, and uh, Fleetwood Mac, Nine Snails, um, uh, Pink Floyd, and they're just beautiful works of art. And I kept running into him. I didn't know who he was, and we just kept bumping into into each other at shows. And third time, I said, well, what do you... We just kind of hit it off as friends. And I said, what do you do? And he told me. And I said, well, I'm, I'm doing a book. And he said come and see my work, and I did, and I said, we have to work on this together, which we did. I brought in a design team of Sony Phillips and Kaylee Carrington. Um, they archived and did the design layout, and they did an amazing job. And so we really just got lost in the whole artistic process and uh, designed this book that was really big and heavy with a slip cover and, you know, I had the pre-sale all arranged, and then, um, like, a couple of months or a month before, we, I turned to Jeff and said, okay, well, how much is it going to cost to actually manufacture this book and ship it? And when I saw the figures, I was astonished, in a, in, not in a good way. <laughs> so uh, we kind of put the cart before the horse and got lost in the artistic process without, you know, kind of really paying much attention to the business side. And so, you know, I put it on sale and actually I, I later went to publishers with the book and they were really impressed how many orders I did get. 
with a book that size and how much it was going to cost to ship, you know. But it was just too expensive to to make and a ship, and um, so I, I just didn't get enough orders to be able to go and get the book made. I just it just wasn't enough money there, so I had to cancel the whole thing, which was devastating. It was really upsetting because I, you know, I felt like I left had all our fans down and my family were like really all involved in trying to help and promote it and I, I had a mini meltdown <laughs> refunded all the money and then I went looking for a publishing deal and uh, had a lot of interest but I, I wanted a company that had good, good distribution and could get the book made for a reasonable price so we didn't have to price it you know you know, too high, and I couldn't find that. I had offers on the table, but and so then I was back to square one. Um, and then, like I referred to earlier, I went around my friend's house, Matt's house, and we we're going to go to a show. And he said, "Hey, look at this new book we just made. I think it was for Hanoi Rocks or some band like that." And I said, "Oh, that's really cool." He said, "Yeah, we did a good deal for them." And I said, "Do you give me a good deal too?" And he said, Kevy, I think we could. <laughs> so, uh, and they did. And, um, and they're, you know, the printers have produced a beautiful book and it's affordable. And next year, right, right now it's only available for um, buying on, you know, on their site for Cleopatra. Music and film. <clears throat> um, and then in March they're going to send it out to distributors around the world in Amazon. So by March, um, you know, if people can't afford to ship it internationally now, they'll be able to get it, you know, in a bookstore or, you know, from Amazon. And it'll be, you know, it'll, it'll be affordable for everyone by then. I like the idea that you, you kind of hit rock bottom with this thing and you didn't give up. You, you still wanted to see the light of day, but there must have been some dark moments in terms of like you going, I'm just going to walk away from this. But, but I like that you didn't. Well, yeah, I mean, I put so much work into it. Um, I mean, you know, I wrote about 30 stories as well. Um, it was surprisingly, you know, it was a lot of hard work. I didn't realize you know, how much goes into making a book. And um, and it was such a great-looking book. You know, I had the book all finished in a digital form, ready to go to the printers. So all that work was done. It was just there, you know, just needed printing. Um, so, you know, I couldn't, you know, there was no, you know, no sense in giving up, really. I mean, I, I had to have a week to kind of recover from the disappointment of not being able to self-publish it. Uh, and then I picked myself up and went looking for publishing deals. Is it, uh, is it easier to make a record than, than do a book? <laughs> um, I'd say it's quite a similar amount of creativity and effort and work. Probably the same. Going back a bit, I know that you played on a song by another Northampton band, uh, The Jazz Butcher. I know your brother was in The Jazz Butcher for a time. And I've always wondered, was there a real sense of community uh, between, you know, all the Northampton bands? Was there a kind of fellowship that was happening at that time period? Yeah, I think with every um, 
you know, large town or city, there's there are communities, musicians, you know. Um, so that was a very, very good, very artistic community. Um, where you know, Alan Moore, the comic book writer, kind of was part of it, and um, he, I think, it was he and my brother and some other guys. They put on a, a thing called the Happening which, um, you know, it's all kind of all forms of artistic um, uh, performance and creation, and it would be like a gig, but it was, you know, it's really interesting. I think they had the, the band that finished the Dutch would play, and people would read poetry, and there's all sorts of... So it was very, there was a very artistic underground uh, kind of scene, and there was, you know, lots of good local bands um, whose names I can't recall right now. But <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was, it was quite vibrant. How did you come to know uh, Pat Fish of the Jazz Butcher? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> um, well, no, actually, hold on. Yeah, I can. So we, with Bauhaus, when we started gain some notoriety locally. Our local newspaper wanted to do a, a thing on us. This newspaper was called The Chronicle and Echo, and they sent out this photographer to do a session, and his name is Mitch Jenkins. And he was very good friends with Pat. And um, so that, the introduction was made through Mitch. Um, and then Mitch actually... He's become a world-renowned photographer now, and he did a lot of our videos, Love and Rocket, and Daniel, Daniel Stoller stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's how we got to know Pat. Were, for you, was it always drums? Were, were, were drums the natural movement for you? I mean, was that, you were always attracted to the instrument, or did you, did you start with another sort of musical foray? Uh, no, actually... I had no kind of thoughts on drums. Um, my brother was in a probably his first band, and they didn't have a drummer. So he said, "Do you want to play drums?" And I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> so um, I went. I started having lessons, and I I just became obsessed with drums. And I, I had a scrapbook, and I would cut out pictures of drum kits and paste them in the scrapbook, and. I would dream of owning a drum set, you know, and because uh, I just started literally with pots and pans and some old bongos, and I kind of made a, a a weird drum kit that I'd sit on the kitchen floor and play. Um, yeah, it's weird. Uh, it's hard how it happened because you know it, it was happening in a very casual way of just a suggestion. Do you want to? play drums and then uh, I guess I had a natural you know leading for it who were, who were the guys that uh, that were playing when you were when you were young that you went wow that that guy's the guy in other words who who did you find to be pretty inspiring as a as a drummer uh, well I started when I was about 12 and I would you know I, I took like drum lessons about a year, and uh, but I just learned a lot of stuff playing along to records, and I play along to Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin and the Faces, 
um, Bowie and Mark Bolan, just put on records and play along. And I picked up a lot of stuff doing that. Um, and then the whole punk thing happened. Actually, um, I went to see Led Zeppelin in just before the whole punk thing broke. And um, John Bonham did this half-hour drum solo. And I left that gig having seen one of the best, you know, rock concerts and the band were just in their prime. Uh, so half of me was kind of elated and half of me was really dejected because I thought I could never play as well as that, you know. And I felt like giving up. And then um, David said, do you want to come and see this punk show at the 100 Club? And it was the Pistols and the Clash. And it sounds like a cliche, but when I thought, when I left that gig, I was like, I can do this. That really kind of gave me the encouragement and confidence to be, you know, just to not be technically proficient, which I'm not really, but just to use my imagination. And then uh, Joy Division's drummer, the Banshee's first drummer, and I'm trying, I'm trying to reach for their names right now. Um, no, they're not coming, but um, they they were quite big influences for me for, with Bauhaus. Um, I think Steve Morris was a Banshee drummer, and he would play a lot on his floor tom and using the tom drums more than cymbals and hi-hats. <clears throat> and I really, I thought that was really cool, and I thought that was a great sound and different. Um, so, yeah. Well, that topper was one hell of a drummer, wasn't he? An amazing drummer. Yeah, I I think it was so key that they had him, you know, because that allowed them also to go off in any direction, which they did, you know, because he was very versatile. So I think he was very important to them. Now, for you with Johnny Bauhaus, um, the sort of the dark iconography and the sort of the, that sort of the gothic imagery... Was that something that you were into? Was that was that Peter Murphy's influence? Like, where did that all come from? Um, it was. We never really. There was no plan. There was no. We didn't discuss an image or what we were going to do or what this band was about. We just did it. Like literally. Um, so. I, I don't know. It may have, you know, Northampton was a small town then, and it was an extremely boring place to live in <clears throat> as a teenager. There was nothing to do. Uh, you know, hence that song, like, in the flat field, I get bored in the flat field. It was, um, so I, I just, you know, and the English weather's really gray and miserable. <laughs> and I think it was just, just our surroundings and the weather and the, the, also the times were, you know, there were, there was lots of strike going on and, uh, you know, like the electricity would be cut off three days a week and so you have to sit around in candlelight or that, that preceded it. You know, that, all that, those times, all the, the garbage people would go on strike and there'd be trash piled in the streets. It was, you know, around some time leading into the 80s, it was kind of a miserable time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think that was maybe the influence. 
maybe that's where it came from. And um, I don't know. There was no right, you know, there was no plan. It sort of happened. Well, just like with with Manchester, you can hear the industrial grayness of Manchester in those early Joy Division albums, mm-hmm. and and maybe with, yeah. with right, and maybe that's kind of what you're saying. You can hear that sort of that, yeah, the bleakness. Yeah, I think it was environmental. I think had we been had we been born in LA, maybe the band wouldn't have existed at all. <laughs> yeah, you might have been the Bauhaus boys. You might have just been on surfboards yeah. and shorts. Right. story this morning about how much Noel Gallagher and Liam Gallagher truly hate each other. And I wonder, you know, is it dangerous to play in a band with a family member? Of course, you're doing, you, you know, obviously you play with your daughters and you play with your brother. I mean, is that is that a tricky thing? Was it always tricky? Was it easy? Is it, would you recommend it? Um, what about that whole dynamic? Um, well, I think, you know, it can work for you and against you, you know. Um, it's really, I mean, it's not really that much different from, you know, working with a good friend where you go through good times and bad times, you know. You have, you have great times and then you clash. And, and I mean, I suppose it's a little different because there's more baggage that comes along with it. Um, but I, I wouldn't say it was, I wouldn't not recommend it or, um, and I, I'm having, you know, it's just a dream to be playing with my daughter. I never, you know, ever, I mean, envisage, envisage that. It, it's, um, it's just amazing on so many levels and, it, you know, it's working, she's, it's working so well. I mean, happens to be an amazing bass player and then there's everything on top of that you know we're actually mixing a a record we recorded uh pop turn it's just you know we're playing our set like all these the uh, the old songs we play 
and um, the engineer we're using, uh, he's, you know, he's worked with Emily from Elton John, she goes drummer, she's like, like huge Motown name, like, like everyone, and he, he said, I don't know if you realize what an amazing player your daughter is, her technique. And we actually lock in, I mean, it's probably not surprising, to, you know, you know, the bloodline, but um, we we just locked together as a rhythm section amazingly well. So um, it's great. Will Pop Tone do new material? Is there is that on the table? <laughs> Possibly, yeah. We've been talking about it. Um, I think we're going to have a go next year. Um, but we only really just started, you know. Uh, it feels like we've been playing for three years, but it's only been three months, really. Well, doing gigs, pretty much. But we did a lot of rehearsals before then. When your when your daughter was telling you when it, when it seemed like it was obvious she's going to be, you know, going to music, were you were you pleased or were you sort of like, uh oh, I've I've seen how that goes. That could be trouble, um, or both. Uh, both, yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, I I actually had this epiphany when she was born. I, you know, was our first child, and looked into her eyes when she was about two days old, and I had this epiphany, and um, I just saw this really old soul, and I wasn't kind of expecting this or, you know, thinking this might happen. I, it was just a surprise and I then I had this thought that well it's my our job just to guide her and not to can't impose anything on this this old soul that she has uh, that she's been around the block a few times before you know and I so you know I talked to that for both of our children and just um, you know I, I really, I, I mean, I feel really blessed and lucky that I was able to make a career um, out of doing what I love and still be doing it. It's amazing. And um, and I think everyone should start out, try that out when you're young, because you have so much time, you know, I tell my niece and nephew to do that and then like, just, you know, go after what you love, because obviously you're going to excel at that. And if it happens, it's great. If it doesn't, it's bad. <laughs> Think of something else. So, um, so yeah, I, when she wanted to do music, I was very encouraging. But I was, you know, I, did, I don't think I said this to her, but, you know, I was kind of fearful that, you know, it's, it's a bit of a roller coaster. And, you know, it's, it's very insecure as well. You know, I, we you know, I mean, we had a time in the late 80s where we were doing really well financially, but most of the time it's been, you know, we I mean, we never really had huge, and we had one huge hit, but we're not like these bands that have, you know, string of hits, but we we live from month to month. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's been amazing in terms of roller coaster ride and being able to be so creative and so I wouldn't swap it. 
you know, it's uh, it's tricky with kids because sometimes kids could be totally into what their parents do, or they go, or they become, you know, the complete opposite. Um, so if if your daughter had yeah. had become a real estate agent, that wouldn't have been surprising because sometimes it would be like, well, I'm going the other direction of my parents. But it turns yeah. out she's a Bauhaus fan. I'm sure. Well, when she, I don't know, I think she was 14 or so, and I, the sec, a Sex Pistols documentary just came out, and so me and my wife took her along to see it. And when we came out of the theater, she had the same look in her eyes that I had when I just left watching The Clash and the Pistols in that club I mentioned before. And she was, she, she was like, bitten by the bug. She was like, Daddy, I, I want... I want to get their record, so we went straight to the Virgin, which still existed, and we bought Nevermind the Bollocks. And she would play it nonstop. And one day, you know, two weeks into this, you know, it's just on the whole time. And I went down to her room and I knocked on the door, and she said, Come in. And it was like blasting. And I said, Diva. And I kind of looked at her, kind of faking this kind of angry look, and she's like, What? And I said, the record, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll turn it down. And I said, no, no, I want you to turn it up. <laughs> and she's like, Daddy, you're supposed to tell me to turn it down. And I laughed and left the room. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she went through a big punk phase and formed a punk band. And, and now she's a lot more kind of a new agey, kind of very creative, very unusual uh, solo music she makes, you know, very unique. Well, leaving leaving the theater after that Sex Pistols documentary and, and seeing that look in her eye must have been a pretty in, cool moment for you. Yeah, 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 it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah I would imagine. It, it all came full circle. Yeah, yeah. And I should mention my other daughter, Lola, who... Um, very creative soul also and um, she's um, she's into science biology and art and she's also a drummer and she plays exactly like me it's uncanny <laughs> from her, her look and posture so it's like really odd and she's um, she's been in a few bands and she's in a new she's just got a new one going which is sounding really cool it's kind of um, it's kind of suicide meets like um, X-ray specs, probably. Or wow, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Did your daughter? Did they raid your your record collection? Did they say who are the Stranglers? What's this about? Did they did they take your your yeah. albums and? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I've noticed a lot of records missing. Like where are they? Where am I? And I go down their rooms and find them, you know. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. When you, just looking back, I know that this book is all about looking back, and I know that, that memory, um, I think Adam Gopnik once said it can be the, the clumsiest of editors because sometimes we we don't remember or we remember things in, in, in flashes. Was it easy for you to access the memories that you did of those 30 stories that you wrote for the book uh, was it a pretty simple to transport yourself back to that time period, or was it was it tough? Um, well, my memory is awful, 
begin with. Uh, but what I found was, when I, yeah, and I've never written aside from at school. And um, so what I found was, I, I started the first story, like, with one of the memories that I the best, you know. And I, and I was trying to write it like a good writer would write, you know. And, but well, this is kind of looking, sounding a little pretentious. So I, I, I read a few books, but one was from Peter Hook, Peter Hook's book, and um, I think Johnny Rotten's book, and 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 then I, I kind of found what what was working with those books was you could hear the voice of that person. They were just being really authentic, um, especially Peter Hook. It was there were no you know, it was, you know, you felt like you were in the room with him and he was very working class down to earth, you know. And I thought, that this this is how it works, you know. So I, you know, dropped all the pensions and then I started to write. And that, just in my, you know, what my voice. Um, but I, I would try and make it a little creative um, to, you know, just to make it more interesting. Just maybe by starting... Like this one story uh, about filming one of our videos, and I think I started from it like um, Peter, Peter's Winkle Pickers were dancing a fandango atop an old um, steam boiler in a public bar. And so at the beginning of the story, you're like, what? What is what's this about? You know, so it kind of draws you in. And then I started to tell the story. I just thought that was kind of a something I learned reading books. Um, but what I found also was uh, once you start writing, recalling a memory, you just get it all down. Like you know, because it, sometimes it comes really fast, and you you don't want to be bothered about grammar or punctuation. Just you know, get it down, and then you can go back. Once you kind of got every piece that you can recall. Then you go back and, you know, just kind of rewrite it. So that's how I, so I kind of learned to write. Hopefully, you know, people have told me, you know, I'm a good writer. I don't know. Very hard to be. I like that you, that you went to books written by musicians. You didn't go to Charles Dickens, which wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> it, you know, it makes sense to yeah. read Peter Hook's book or to read, uh, you know, John Lydon's book. That makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, you know, them being contemporaries and um, musicians, yeah. <clears throat> what was the process like for you in terms of, like, pulling back those memories? Because sometimes it can open up things you hadn't actually thought about in a really long time. When you when you finally got those all together, what did it what did it tell you about your past? Did you learn anything from the process? Um, well, really, I... I, I actually set out to, I wanted this book to be like a celebration of the band. Because, you know, I've read some books from band members and, you know, I, I find that they can become unnecessarily, you know, you can recall what happened. And some of it can be positive and some of it, some of it can be negative, but... Now, some writers then will add, like, just personal jabs and and just, you know, just become mean-spirited. And I just thought, 
I don't want to do that. I want this, you know, I, I just want this to be a celebration and just to um, evoke the love we felt for each other. And because our backs were against the wall a lot of the times in the early days, the press hated us. And, and the British press can be really vicious, like you wouldn't believe. If you go back and read Powerhouse reviews and interviews, and they would stick the knife in. So we, we, we felt we had our backs against the wall, and we were just, you know, on our own without any support. So we just, it, made, it pulled us together as friends and as a band. And, and we had a lot of funny experiences. Um, and, you know, we had, there was a lot of humor. And I just thought people would probably, you know, was not aware of that. And so I just, that's how I wanted my book, you know, when you, when you close the last page, I wanted people to have like a, you know, a warmth and a good natured smile on their faces rather than like, Jesus, that was heavy, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, the, right. I mean, because obviously people don't think of that there, you know, that there are funny or maybe spinal tap like or comedic moments in the life of Bauhaus. They think you guys are sleeping in coffins. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, they they would just imagine, you know. I mean, we we used to get invitations to magic rituals, like the um, <laughs> like from serious, you know, serious practitioners of black magic and we we thought that was amusing you know they kind of got the wrong end of the stick um but yeah yeah people wouldn't you know think we you know that we would have a good sense of humor which we all we all did you know what was the uh, what was the complaint that the press had against Bauhaus what was the complaint with the sound like what what was the problem <clears throat> oh Mainly that we were extremely pretentious, um, that we were copying David Bowie. I mean, all of this is true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there was there was definitely, you know, we were very arty, and you know, some writers were still kind of holding on to the whole punk thing, which you know, there was punk in us. We came from there. But there was a lot of theater and drama and a little bit of pretense and a lot of art. And, you know, I really think a lot of British writers um, were, you know, failed musicians. And were, I think there was always a bit of jealousy there, I think. When we came over to the States, <laughs> that, that, that attitude didn't exist. I mean... Hardly, you know. And I remember distinctly, and also with the audiences, they would come out just to have a good time and because and, they loved the band, but sometimes you'd play in big cities in England, Britain, and people would be like, oh, come on then, show us what you've got. Come on, prove yourselves. Like, bet you're going to be shit. You know, there, there was that kind of that attitude sometimes, <laughs> which is kind of, Good in a sense because it keeps you on your toes. But when we when we came to the states, we we're like, oh, this is great. You know, like our journalists are just really nice, and they they write exactly what you told them, and they didn't 
they weren't all nice during the interview and then just stuck the knife in when they print. Like, it would be unbelievable. Like, they would be really nice. And we, as time went on, we we would take them out to dinner or to a pub and, like, really be nice to Because we were just like, please, can we just get one nice review interview? And uh, I'm not sure if we ever did. Wow. <laughs> Maybe Mick Martha, Mick Martha, he was a really nice guy. But most of them were real bastards. And they- <laughs> And I mean, the thing is, did it surprise you that, because I grew up, like I told you, I grew up in San Francisco and I have friends in LA and Bauhaus were a huge band in both places, sunny LA and sunny-ish San Francisco. What do you think it is about the music that clicked so much with kids that were in the United States? Um, I, I mean, I don't know really. I mean, just, I don't know. Um, it's just making me think of put the forward in the book, and instead of reaching out to one person to write a forward, I reached out to a lot of people. And Peter Hook wrote one, and Moby, and Maynard, um, Billy Corgan. And I just think it's kind of in general what they would write to see that they were. You know, they felt they were all alone and that nobody kind of understood them. And um, I'm thinking of friends who told me that they lived in out-of-way places. And said when they heard, like, our house and the Joy Division and the Banshees and Psychedelic Furs and all these bands, they were like, oh, my God, that's, that's me, that, you know, that's, understand this and they understand me this is what I think and this is what I feel um, so you know I think you know we appeal to people who are probably ostracized a little bit at, you know at school and in their neighborhood or do you know what I'm saying I do we're kind of you know <clears throat> Part of the underground, and but you know we spoke to them. Again. Yeah, I totally and, agree. Yeah, I mean, I I mean it's kind of interesting how that can travel so far, you know, from a different culture and still mean exactly what it means, you know, or what it's meant to mean. Um, So, yeah. Well, I mean, I also think, you know, it's it's environmental as well. I mean, you know, California's pretty sunny. The music's pretty dark. And, you know, you're always attracted. If you live in the light, you're attracted to the darkness. I mean, I think that's a, a, a part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know? So we would, we would, during that time, we got about five or six letters from people who wrote to us and said, I was going to commit suicide and I put your record on and it saved me. And we would kind of think, well, you would think it would probably do the opposite. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, that was surprising. Very, and, you know, also um, extremely touching and 
like, wow, you know, you. We never envisioned, of course, when we started the band that it could have that much effect on a person, you know. Which is, um, and also, you know, stand the test of time. Um, when we we reformed in '98 and did like a world tour, and we were kind of bigger then than we were originally, which is quite odd. But how just out of curiosity how competitive were you because at the time period there were a lot of great drummers um, that were your contemporaries I, I think of like the guy from the Chameleons was a, an ab, outstanding drummer uh, I, the guy from Bow Wow Wow was a great drummer uh, there, there were a lot of mm -hmm. great drummers in, uh, in that sort of early 80s to the mid 80s or some great players would you ever go to shows and were you were you competitive at all um, how did you feel when you saw people that were pretty mind-blowing that were contemporaries? Uh, <clears throat> I remember Killing Joe's drama because we played we used to play in the big fame still a lot of the time. Paul Ferguson, I think that's his name. Um, he used to blow me away and I, I wanted to be as good as him. <laughs> You know, technically. Um, so, yeah, I guess probably I was a little jealous of him, maybe. Um, but also, you know, like, uh, sort of with Banshees and watching Budgie and Jane's Addiction, watching Steve Perkins, Steve became a good friend of mine. And also, on the flip side, I just, like, it's amazing just, to watch these guys play and just appreciate, you know, like, um, how, you know, how, you know, they, everyone has different styles and techniques, which is interesting and just, especially like with Steve and Budgie, they were very natural drummers. It just appeared to me that this just like a natural extension of them. And I, I always felt a bit kind of, the opposite of that, like it was a bit of a struggle between me and the drum kit. <laughs> like, um, but as time goes on, I kind of feel that less and less. Can you talk briefly just about your friendship with Daniel Ash? Like, it's incredible that you've known him as long as you have. What's it like being pals with that guy? Uh, it's great. I'm, we get on really well. Um, I think we're very opposite. I think that helps. Um, but uh, we always make each other laugh a lot. And um, just, you know, talk to each other and, you know, we love each other and it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> Have yeah. a lot of respect for each other. Um, so, yeah, I'm really, you know, enjoying working minutes. I hadn't played for like eight years and I thought I'd never, you know, the idea of touring was just, oh, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> but we're doing, um, doing it in little like, uh, like it's called Weekend Warrior thing, I think, where you, we found going out for eight shows over two weeks is great. And by the end of that two weeks, we just want to go home and we have like two or three weeks off and then we go out again. 
that's kind of the basic. And it just makes it doable. You know, otherwise, you know, we just burn out and not want to do it at all. So, so you you hadn't played drums in eight years? Like you just hadn't played at all? Um, pretty much. I probably did like two or three. I don't know, like a charity things or a party. Um, and, but yeah, pretty much hadn't, you know, I have a drum set in my studio, never sat, sit behind it. I wonder if you, if you walked by your drum set and, and said, what are you looking at? And then did you have a weird relationship <laughs> when, when, like when you walked by it? Were you sort of like, I should get behind that? Yeah. Sometimes I look at it and go, I, you know, I haven't played that thing for like years. <laughs> and now I'm really enjoying playing and um, uh, feel like I have to kind of work harder before we go on tour, like practice, you know, every day for at least two weeks uh, to get the stamina up again. <laughs> um, but I'm really enjoying doing that. You know, it's like instead of going to the gym, I make playlists of like, uh, fast songs and then throw in some punk songs and and then I just play for an hour until I'm just exhausted and you know had a really good workout and you know it's fun yeah it is it's a hell of a workout I find drummers drummers stay the most fit in bands I find yeah I mean yeah you have to you have to be fit you have to be fit. Uh, and, and and just to finish up with, are you and Mr. Murphy, are you guys okay? Is that, do you, are you in touch with that guy or just there's any contact with him? Not really. I'm, um, he kind of reached out to uh, come and visit me with his son last uh, Christmas. And um, he got a cold and he didn't show up. Um, you know, we just, you know, we, we're on amicable terms. We don't really cross paths, you know. Right. But, um, you know. Well, I, I maintain he, he's one of the greatest front men in rock and roll history. He's, he's unbelievable. You can't take your eyes off that guy. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I feel really blessed to have worked with him and um, absolutely, you know, just very amazing voice, amazing voice, and just, yeah, his presence and charisma. And, uh, yeah. He, he had it to burn. Really, uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I don't think, well, hopefully, but I, I don't know. If we'll see the like of, you know, performers like him anymore, I don't know.
So there you go. That's Kevin Haskins, a lovely guy. Get the book, Bauhaus Undead. Order it. You're going to love it. And I love you for listening. I'll see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast.